And this week we'll go uh, through verses 5 to 12. We'll back up a little bit though and start reading in verse 2 for a little bit of context. The title of the sermon is Getting the Band Together. Getting the Band Together. Which is what's happening in this text. Sort of, kind of. In a first century Christian way. Uh, I'm reading teaching from the NIV. I maybe drink too much coffee. I feel it right now. Uh, Let's start reading in Acts 13, verse 2. It's going to say they, and they refers to the church in Antioch. Acts 13, verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at, I don't know how to say that word, we'll call it Salamis, even though I know it's not how you pronounce it, Salamis, no, that sounds horrible, I don't know how to pronounce it. They proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus the sorcerer, same guy referred to previously, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. And immediately a mist and darkness came over him and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, He believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word that is before us, that is holy and good, right and righteous and wonderful. For some of us this morning, this is an old story. For some of us, this is a new story. But for every one of us, there is truth in this story that you intend us to hear and receive and believe and be shaped by. You, Jesus, want us to be as your people included in your purposes, experiencing your love as we engage with you on your mission. You want our lives to count for something really meaningful, for your glory. We thank you for these things, and they are because of love. And so we ask that this morning as we uh, think about, hear, and receive your word, that we would indeed, by the work of the Holy Spirit, be shaped by it. We ask together, please, Lord, that you would help me to teach and preach. I humble myself before you and your church. I declare that I'm dependent on you and that I need you, so please fill me with your Holy Spirit. Anoint and enable me to preach in a way that is helpful to this church and faithful to Scripture and brings glory to Jesus. 
We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, the portion of the text that we're looking at today is very much connected to what happened last week in the text that Travis was teaching from. You can discern that. That's easy. But there was a wonderful hope to us held out from last week's text through the preaching of tra- through Travis's preaching. And that was the hope of, as Jesus' people, being able to find out who we were made to be by God and then living into that calling, that truth, and then learning to thrive in that place. The hope that was held out to us last week was the hope of finding out who we're made to be by God living into that and thriving in that place. We saw last week in the text this hope, the hope of being able to hear the call of God. I mean, to really hear and discern for ourselves as a community together what the Spirit has to say to you about your life and what your life means to Him and His plan for your life and His purposes for you. Saw last week the beautiful truth that God has called us first to Himself and then second to His mission. We're reminded of the fact that when Jesus first called his disciples in Mark chapter 3, it says, He appointed those whom he wanted that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. But the first point of business was withness. He called them and he calls us first to be with him. It is primarily about our relationship with God before it's about anything that we do for God. Capiche? Got that. We saw that in the text last week. And Travis suggested to us, probably so, that in discovering the call of God for our lives, we become who we truly are. Now, I want to clarify that statement and add, add a little meat to it, because that's become sort of a common phrase within Christianity, that God helps us become who we truly are. And I think there's some danger in that statement, because who we truly are is also super messed up. Can I get a witness? But when we say that as Christians, I think what we mean to say is that by discovering the call of God, we become who he truly intended and intends us to be. Through regeneration, through sanctification, by his spirit in us, as we're formed by the word according to his sovereign plan. When we say truly become us, we mean truly become who God intends us to be. That's the hope, right? Because there's parts of us that we ought not to truly become. But there's things in us that God has deposited that we really need to lean into. And God wants us to become who we truly are because he loves us. And who he truly intends us to be and what he truly intends us to do is better than who we intend to be and what we intend to do. And so because he loves us deeply more than we could ever fathom, he's always through the work of sanctification trying to make us more truly who we are in him. Now the church in Antioch that we're looking at in chapter 13, they were experiencing that. They're experiencing that work of God through the spirit of God. They're experiencing in our text God calling people in its number. And they were trying to live into this And experience that calling by living into the practices that Jesus taught us. Right? That's what we see in the text. They were engaged in community, worship, prayer, and fasting. Some of the practices that Jesus gave to us. Community, Christian community, worship, prayer, and fasting. And it was while they were doing those things that they heard from God. 
And again, the hope of the text is that we can also hear from God. Right? The text is not just about Paul and Barnabas. It's about you and us. And while they were doing those things that Jesus taught us to do, they discovered the call of God. And we all agree that we want to discover the call of God. But we all also often struggle with these practices that Jesus gave us. But I think part of the Christian journey is learning to really lean into these things that Jesus taught us. Christian community, worship, prayer, and fasting. That's part of the journey with Jesus. That's part of the Christian thing. But as we try to lean into them, we all realize that there are real barriers to doing these things. Real barriers to healthy, fruitful, faithful Christian community and worship and a prayer life and even fasting. For example, our selfishness and our general rule of me over all others are real barriers to Jesus' call of community. Can I get some identification with that? You know what I'm talking about. We all have these proclivities towards selfishness and a general rule when push comes to shove of me over others, which is a real barrier to what Jesus intends for Christian community. For example, our love of money, our lust for things, and endless distractions are real barriers to Jesus' call to true worship. We all struggle with those things. We have to deal with those things and confront those things. But Jesus is calling us to true worship. And these can be barriers to that experience. Another example, our self-absorbed and obsessive inner dialogue. Am I only talking about me there? Okay, just making sure. Our bent toward gossip and our constant overconnection with others are barriers to Jesus' call to prayer. The self-absorbed, obsessive inner dialogue is often what, we, what replaces prayer to God or dialogue with God. Our bent toward gossiping about people rather than praying for people. Our constant over-connection with others. We often go immediately to DMing people or Facebooking people or emailing or calling or texting or whatever before we go to Jesus in prayer. These things can be real barriers to what God has for us because of his love for us in a practice like prayer. Final example, our proclivities to binge and indulge are barriers to Jesus' call to fast. Anybody know about binging and indulging? And so, as Jesus' people, we have to confront those barriers. We have to be aware of them. That's why I put them on the screen. We have to be aware of them. And we have to have the hope that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can break through them. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we can overcome those barriers and move into practices like fasting, prayer, worship, and faithful and fruitful community. Jesus has those things for us because he loves us. And what those barriers can do that we mentioned is keep us stuck Anyone know what it feels like to be stuck in your walk with the Lord? Just me and Al, a couple of you. (laughs) To be stuck, not because I think you're stuck, but you nodded. You you threw me the only bone in the whole room of hundreds. (laughs) Those things can keep us stuck. And in a place of being someone less than God intends us to be. Right? The point is to fully become who God intends us to be. But those barriers, if we give give them too much power in our lives, can keep us stuck and in a place of being less 
than what God has created us to be. Now, the church in Antioch was practicing those practices. So it's no wonder that the believers in Antioch were first called Christians. They were the first ones to be called Christians because they were committed to doing Christian things. And in that, they were discovering call and mission and truest identities for people as they lived those out. And our text narrows it down to two of those people, Saul and Barnabas. Saul, who was also Paul, the Apostle Paul. Our text narrows it down to these two people. Now, there were other people, for sure, who were being called. Other people that were experiencing these things. Other people that were on mission. But the book of Acts begins to track primarily Paul and his cohorts. Immediately, it's Barnabas. So it narrows in on this too, though there were many others. And together in community, they're discovering what God's plan was for those two and for others. And Travis gave us a good uh, reminder. He said last week, in this text, we have to resist the temptation to think that this is about vocational ministers. You know what I mean? This is only for people who are being called into full-time ministry. This is not. This is a text for us. Paul and Barnabas are us. And the thing about Paul and Barnabas is when they had this call in this context of spiritual practices and community, they chose to obey. You know you don't have to obey. If you disobey, God will still love you. God will forgive you. God will still work through your life. Yesterday, my wife got some new chickens because our chickens have been dying. I don't know why. Maybe someone can help us. And um, my wife got some new chickens. She brought them home. My wife and Fifi went to go get them. And they were putting them in our coop. And like we already had, we had one chicken left over. Uh, what are those kind of chickens called? F- fluffies? Silkies. They're a very boutique type of chicken, like a hipster chicken. It's like a hipster chicken. It's silky. Uh, and we have one left. Its name is Love. Because for a while we were naming all of our chickens after Bible themes, but they keep dying. But the last of these <laughs> is love, which is interesting. You see that? Did you get the first? I don't... Okay. So she went to buy some chickens. She got some chickens. She got one big hen and a bunch of babies. And she was going to transfer them from the carrier that shook out of the back of her car into the chicken coop. And Fifi was her cohort. My four-year-old daughter was her partner in this project. And so she said, Fifi, don't let love out of the chicken coop when I go to put these others in. And Fifi immediately throws open the door of the chicken coop and love comes running out and she's gone. Which is problematic because you need to acclimate chickens to one another. They have a pecking order. So you got to like, you know, put them together at the right time in the right way and all this stuff. So it was like a big problem. And Kate was like, Fifi, I told you not to let the chicken out. And Fifi knew that she disobeyed. Fifi felt remorse. She actually cried a little bit and she hid behind the coop. And you know what it didn't do? It didn't change the way that we feel about Fifi. I looked at that little girl crying, feeling remorse for what she had done. And I loved her intensely in that moment, as did Kate. You can disobey God. It's not going to change the way that he feels about you. But the chicken might get out of the coop. (laughs) And things can get away from you. And things can start to run wild that ought to be in a different place. I think obedience is better than disobedience. And what I love about these guys, Barnabas and Saul, is that when they heard the call, they choose to obey. 
And it says in verse 3 that they were sent out by the church. And then it says in verse 4 that they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. Do you see that partnership? God's Spirit and God's people in alignment together. It says both. They were sent out by the church and they were sent out by the Spirit. That is the goal. For the church to be in step with the Holy Spirit. To do what the Spirit is doing. Later on in Acts chapter 15, we'll get this grammar from the early church in Jerusalem where they write a letter about some directives and they said, it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. Not just it seemed good to us, but it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. Here's a church in step with the Spirit. Please, God, make us a church in step with your Spirit. Please, God, Make us a people in step with your spirit. I love it. They were sent out by the church and by the Holy Spirit, God's people and God's spirit in harmony, in partnership, as it ought to be. And so these guys obeying, being sent by the church and the spirit, they embark on what is called by Bible students, Paul's first missionary journey, somewhere between 46 and 48 AD. Paul's first missionary journey. Paul goes on his first missionary journey. And Jesus is sending him on a journey because he loves them. Jesus always sends us on journeys and on mission because he loves us. We're included in the work of God because he loves us and he has an intent for us. And we mean something to his kingdom and his work and his purposes. And so he includes us. He doesn't exclude us. Anybody know what it feels like to be excluded? God does not exclude you from his passions or his work or his plans. You are very much a part of the plan because he loves you. And so they left Antioch where they were and they took a 15-mile walk to a place called Seleucia on the coast to catch a boat. And from there, they took a 70-mile boat ride to an island called Cyprus. We have a map here where you can see where Cyprus was. On the right there is Syria. You can see Antioch where they left. They went to Seleucia. Down below is Israel, right? If you, if you want to sort of see where you are on the map, because who knows maps. And then that is the island of Cyprus. You know Cyprus. It's absolutely beautiful. Look at some Google images. Even while I'm preaching, I don't care. Um, and you've heard about Cyprus in the news the last few years. It's a beautiful place. But that's where they went. It was a 70-mile boat ride, a large Mediterranean island off the coast of Syria. And this, we learned in Acts chapter 4, is actually Barnabas' home island. Now, this is cool. I like this. This is Barnabas' home. It's their first missionary journey. Remember that though the Spirit had clearly called them, the Spirit did not clearly say where they were to go. I think that's interesting. The book of Acts teaches us that sometimes the Spirit explicitly says, go here and nowhere else. We see that in lots of places. We'll see that in a very profound way in Acts 16. But other times the Spirit doesn't say where to go. The Spirit called them clearly and said to go, go do the work, but didn't say where to go. Now this is cool. I love this. There must have been some discussions, some prayer, some dreaming, some imagining, and I imagine Barnabas Barnabas saying, Paul, I want to go to my home island. I want to tell my people about Jesus. Paul, this is our first big trip, dude. I want to go to Cyprus, my home island. I think that's so cool. My wife and I, along with others, started this church 15 years ago next week. Next week, it'll be 15 years. And before God called us to start this church, we had opportunities 
other opportunities to do other things, including other church work in other cities. But there came a time in our hearts where we felt like, ah, we don't want to go anywhere else. I was born and raised in this town. This is where we're from. We, we, we don't want to go anywhere else. We want to tell our people about Jesus. I mean, we could have gone anywhere in the world and done anything, but we wanted to tell our people about Jesus. Barnabas was invested in this place. His parents were from there. He was from there. John Mark, who we meet in this text, is his cousin. Colossians 4 tells us he was from there. He wanted to go there and tell his people about Jesus. He was invested. He had family roots there. Man, my parents have been teaching Bible studies in this city since the early 1970s. They used to have a Christian coffee shop in the early 70s right next to the Carpinteria Theater. It's now called the Alcazar. They used to have a Christian coffee shop. You were there. And my dad and John Becchio and others would teach Bible studies there in the evening. And my mom would minister and they would serve the Lord. And like, there's roots here and they are invested here. And I don't want to go anywhere else. I want to tell my people about Jesus. Is what Barnabas said, I imagine. And then we see this in Acts whatever. When they arrived at Salami, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. That's John Mark, not John the Apostle, different John. John Mark, Barnabas' cousin. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. Here's what I like about this. First thing, I, I like the fact that they form a little band of friends, right? The sermon's called Getting the Band Together. They form a little band of friends, Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark. They build a team. Sometimes missiologists and theologians call these sort of things missionary bands. Sounds too highfalutin. This is a band of friends. They got together. They formed a little team. I love the fact that they had differing roles. We're told that John Mark was the helper. Right, Barnabas, we're told all throughout scripture, was an encourager. And we always see him encouraging people. And Paul, of course, is a theologian and a church planner. So there's different gift sets, different tendencies, different bents, different ways that God has made each one of them. And together they form a little unit, a little team. And every single part is important. Paul couldn't do what Paul was doing if John Mark wasn't willing to do what John Mark needed to do. You know, Paul was like, the cold, stiff theologian, there needed to be a Barnabas who came along with some warm, fuzzy encouragement. Like they formed this little team of friends who were going on an adventure with Jesus. I want to encourage us as a church to get the band together. Pretty soon we'll be starting home groups as a church this fall. And that's a great opportunity to get the band together. You're going to get in this group of small people and you're going to meet each other and you're going to find out that there's different gift sets and different ways that you guys can begin to live out the mission of God. Because the point of home groups is not just to get in there and like cuddle each other forever and just cry forever. The point is to like get in there and grow in the Lord together and grow in relationship and live out the mission of God in our community and to the nations. Get the band together. We'll introduce home groups soon. Get in a home group and get a band together and go on a journey with Jesus. Do it with our people, man. Do it with our people. Get a ripping band for Jesus together in our community for our people, for the glory of Christ here. But some of us also need to go far away because we as a church also have a call to the nations. 
And what we're doing as a church is we're trying to form, through our global ministry, form missionary bands. We want to send families to the unreached and faraway hard places for their whole lives. And so we're forming teams, church-based teams, we call them, of different people with different gift sets and proclivities and leanings. We put them together, train them, support them, send them for their whole lives to go and do the work of Christ in a place where they've never heard the name of Christ. But let's, as a church, get some ripping bands together. The second thing I like about this is they had a clear vision, focus, and method. They went to the island, they landed, and they proclaimed the word of God. They had a focus. There's a lot of stuff that they could have done. You know what I mean? They could have gone there and done some relief work. They could have got some shoes for the people that didn't have shoes. They could have dug some wells. They could have done all sorts of stuff. But they went there and they proclaimed the word of God. They just knew what they were supposed to do. They had a focus. Their focus was driven by a clear call from Jesus and instruction from Jesus. Jesus had given them the great commission to go and make disciples. So they went and they were making disciples. And when it says they were proclaiming the word of God, we know what they were talking about. They were talking about Jesus. I love that this band was Christocentric. Everybody say it. Christocentric. They were Christ-centered. There wasn't tertiary things going on. There wasn't superfluous stuff that they were involved in yet. They were just like, dude, we're going to the island. Barnabas, this is your island. We're going to lay it out. We're going to talk about Jesus. I like the simplicity of that. I also like that they're very human. They start with a comfortable approach. They go first to the Jewish synagogues. These are Jewish guys, Jewish people they know. They speak the language they understand. They feel more comfortable in that context. You know, they're really supposed to be going to the Gentiles. That's really what's supposed to be going on. When, when God called Saul, he said, you're my chosen instrument to take the gospel to the Gentiles. That's really what's supposed to be happening. But I love that they're human and I love that God's cool that they start in a comfortable place. Paul will actually do this through most of his career. He'll go first to the synagogue and then he'll go to the Gentiles. I think that's okay. Let's get some ripping bands together. Let's make them Christocentric and let's take some baby steps. Where are some low barriers to entry where we can go in and begin to talk to Jesus about people? You know what I mean? They're just like, that was the easiest place for them to go at first. Let's go to the Jewish synagogue. The third thing I love about this text is even though they started in a comfortable fashion, they eventually did go big. We're told that they covered the island from one end to the other. They landed in the eastern seaport of Salami and they went to the western harbor of Paphos. It's 150 miles away. Ancient Cyprus had 17 cities in it. It says they went all throughout the whole island. They just went big. They just went from place to place to place talking about Jesus. And you know, like Barnabas, was, he, he, he wasn't from everywhere in Cyprus. He was obviously from some city there in Cyprus, but he had a vision that was just bigger than his own town. We've always seen Reality Carpinteria, this church, as being a church for the coastlands. In the beginning, God gave us a vision for the coastlands. What we mean by the coastlands is like that area from like the Oxnard side of Ventura up to like the north end of Santa Barbara, right? Where the 101 kind of hits the ocean there. God has kind of given us a vision for that area. We talk a lot. It's part of our grammar and vernacular and mission at this church, the coastlands. That's why we've started campuses in Ventura and Santa Barbara, Reality Ventura, Reality Santa Barbara. We've got a vision for the coastlands. Now, we have included in the coastlands Ojai. 
It's an inclusion by grace for you guys, Ed and Jerry. We love, we love you, Ed and Jerry and others, some others living there. You know. It's an inclusion by grace because it's not on the beach, but you know, we love you guys. So we've included, we're like expanding the territory there. No, we have a vision that's bigger than just like our town of 14,000 people for the coastlands. We want to be a church for the coastlands. And many of you are from Ojai and Ventura and Santa Barbara and Goleta and different places. And we're partnered with other churches to reach the coastlands. And I want us to go big. Paul and Barnabas went big, man. They went throughout the whole island. They went throughout the whole island, 17 cities. And they preached about Jesus. Those are the things I like about the text. Let me tell you what I don't like about the text. These next few verses. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul. Now, proconsul means like governor type dude. Sergius Paulus, sounds like a fashion designer. <laughs> the proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus the sorcerer, I know it's a little confusing, but it's the same guy from verse 6. That's what his name means. His name means sage, or it could be translated sorcerer. Opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from faith. Here's what I don't like about the text. This truth. I do not like this truth. Serving the Lord guarantees opposition from the devil. That is true. I do not like that that's true. Serving the Lord guarantees opposition from the devil. And the book of Acts screams this at us. We see this pattern emerge over and over and over and over again in the book of Acts. Can't we just get a stinking victory without the follow-up from the devil afterwards? No! Over and over and over again. God's spirit is moving through God's people and then the enemy responds in some sort of attack and it will continue all the way to the end of the book of Acts. And as far as the Christian life is concerned, this is real life. This is the Christian life. If you're going to serve the Lord, you're going to be in the battle. If you're in the game, you're going to take some hits. If you don't want to take any hits, sit on the bench. But if you as a Christian ever get off the bench and get in the game and get intentional and serious about serving the Lord, you're going to take some hits. Some of the hits will feel like they are going to end your existence. Some of the hits feel like you will never, nor will the community ever recover from them. This is part of the gig. And here the opposition, quite frankly, is creepy. The description is a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet whose name is Bar-Jesus, which means in the language, son of Jesus. This is just creepy, right? Like, here's a sorcerer, and he says, hi, I'm the son of Jesus. This is weird stuff. And it says that he opposed the missionary band, and he tried to keep the governor from believing. Here's a super cool open door. This, this, this dude's a governor, right? He's in a place of position and power and influence, and he wants to hear the word of God. He's a man of peace in this community, welcoming in those who bring the gospel. Jesus spoke about men of peace, women of peace. He's a person of peace in the community. Hey, I, I've got power and influence here. I can do whatever I want. 
I want to hear about this Jesus. And there's real opposition to that. It says he opposed them and he tried to keep the governor from believing in Jesus. That's real spiritual battle unfolding there. That reminds me of other places in the New Testament like 2 Timothy. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth. Oh, I meant to have the next verse there as well. Which says that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil who has held them captive against their will. That's verse 26 verbatim. That they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil who has held them captive against their will. Like the battle's real. Like this guy, this Jewish sorcerer in touch with dark powers was trying to keep the governor captive to sin and the weight of sin and the guilt of sin and the penalty of sin by keeping him away from faith in Jesus. That's real and this is real and that's a real part of the Christian life. I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians 4, which says, And if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, who's that referred to in the New Testament? The devil. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who's in the image of God. That's flipping heavy stuff. That Satan is literally endeavoring to blind the minds of people that we know, that we love, our people, and people far away, to keep them from the truth of Jesus, through whom they might discover forgiveness and new life and true life and eternal life. Man, the battle is real. The battle is real. And we're dealing with real powers at work. And there's real consequences. There's real consequences. I mean, think about the eternal consequences if this Bar-Jesus sorcerer do had prevailed in this story and the governor never got to hear the good news about Jesus and put his faith in him. Think about the eternal consequences of that. This is heavy stuff. And so Paul, I like Paul. Paul handles the situation quite well. Last week, Travis spoke about our Christian witness sometimes being like humble and meek and gentle. Well, other times, it should be like this. This. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. (laughs) I love it. How bold is Paul? How gnarly is Paul? How much faith did Paul have? Like Paul just just called it out like that. Now here's what I like about this. Paul, in the moment was resourced by God to handle the battle. It says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul, in the moment of need, in the moment of battle, because the battle was real and the consequences were real, he was resourced by heaven to handle the battle. It says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And literally, if you look at the Greek grammar there, the tense of the verb, it means having just been filled with the Spirit. It was a fresh filling from on high, a fresh resource from God, a fresh enabling to deal with the situation in the moment. Paul, having just been filled with the Spirit of God, looks at the guy and says, you're a son of Satan. This is heavy stuff. That's key in the text. You need to sit on that for a moment. That's key in the text. Paul did this having just been filled with the Holy Spirit. Now in the book of Acts, we've been talking a lot about being filled with the Spirit and the initial filling of the Spirit and there are subsequent fillings with the Holy Spirit. And it is not possible to live a faithful, fruitful Christian life without repeated fillings of the Holy Spirit. Paul would write later on in Ephesians 5.18 and says, be continually being filled with the Spirit therefore. The common prayer of the Christian ought to be, God, fill me with your spirit in this moment. The common hope of the Christian ought to be when things are overwhelming and difficult, God is going to resource me from heaven by the power of his spirit. God, fill me with your spirit. When we're confronting darkness, which we do every day in this world, God, fill me with your spirit. Where do you need in your life right now resourcing from heaven? Man, it might be just even in your marriage. Your marriage might be in a place where you got to fight for it right now. Sometimes you got to fight for marriage, man. And you need resourcing from heaven and your desperate cry needs to be, God, fill me with your spirit to love my wife like Christ loved the church. God, fill me with your spirit to love my husband. God, fill me with your spirit to be a faithful father. God, fill me with your spirit to serve this tyrant of a boss in a way that's a faithful Christian witness. God, fill me with your spirit to overcome fear and be a witness for you and my community. God, fill me with your spirit to take the gospel to the nations. God, fill me with your spirit to resist this temptation. God, fill me with your spirit to cease my gossip and my slander and to slay my own tongue. God, fill me with your spirit. Where do you need that in your life right now? God hears that desperate cry. The Holy Spirit is called the gift of the Father for the Father loves you and the Father wants your marriage to flourish. The Father wants your parenting to go well. The Father wants you to overcome temptation. The Father wants you to be faithful in the workplace. The Father wants you to be a witness in this place with these people whom you care about. The Father wants you to take the gospel where it's never gone before because the Father loves you and so the Father resources you with his spirit. What a wonderful hope we have as Christians. As a result, Paul was bold and effective and engaging the enemy. Bold and effective. I don't know, maybe sometimes we're too timid when it comes to confronting evil in our world and in our culture. So I love this scene. A team of friends doing what they know they ought to do. They're on a gospel adventure. There's true and creepy opposition, as there will always be. But while they're participating in God's mission, God is resourcing them in full as needed by his spirit. And all the while, God is accomplishing his work through his word. Don't forget what's going on in the unseen realm behind the screen. 
God is accomplishing his work by his word. The very last verse of our text says, when the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed for or because he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. It doesn't say he believed because he was amazed at the miracle. He was amazed at the truth about Jesus. There was this battle unfolding right here. And behind the scenes, God was accomplishing God's work by God's word. It was the word of God that had the effect in this man. This man was converted. And he becomes the first governing authority on record to become a Christian. The first governing authority on record to become a Christian is this dude. And there was a battle for his salvation. There was a battle for his salvation. Where's the battle in our community right now? Where's the battle in your family right now? There are real battles unfolding. God, fill us with your spirit. There are real battles unfolding. Help us to be bold and effective in the face of evil opposition, God. For there's much at stake. And I love that in the end, in verse 12, Jesus and his purpose is one. Jesus always wins. Jesus always wins. And Jesus will always win. Life doesn't always feel that way. It doesn't. But this is a Christian hope that we're called to hold on to. That in the end, Jesus wins. So God may say to you today, what Paul wrote to the church in Galatia. So let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. The author of Hebrews said, and maybe you need to hear this today, therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance right now, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And I want to give to you 1 Corinthians 15, 58, which says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. We need to hear that. Because life and ministry and mission don't always feel that way, but that's truth. That's truth. Your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So I want us as a church to identify with and learn from this band of friends. Jesus is working in and through them. The word of God and the teaching about the Lord carried the day. I want us to see that. Man, if we need some laser sharp focus, the word of God and the teaching about the Lord carried the day. Maybe you've been giving your attention and effort to lesser endeavors. Man, the word of God's a thing. Carried the day. It's living and active. It's powerful. You might have a very creative mission or approach, and it may be cool. Maybe it's not. But do the word of God and the teaching about the Lord figure prominently in it? Man, this band had laser focus. They knew what they did. The word of God, the truth about Jesus. They had a clear call, but they didn't have clear direction. But they went ahead and figured out a place and they went there and they went for it. So we all got clear calls. Jesus is commissioned, he's called us. 
Maybe you're sitting around waiting for a bolt of lightning to slap you in the face and say, go to this place. Maybe you just need to get up and go. And who are your people? Who are your people? Remember after Jesus healed the demoniac, the garrison demoniac on the far side of the Sea of Galilee, the guy who was demonized with legions and he used to sit around in the graveyard and cut himself and he had broken chains and nobody could ever tame him or help him. And Jesus cast out the demons and he healed them. And then he said to the man, now go to your people and tell them what I've done for you. Who are your people? Where's your Cyprus? Don't you want to tell them about Jesus? But remember before any of that happened, it started with the practices. They were being with Jesus through faithful community, worship, prayer, and fasting. So we make space for that at reality, right? We're going to go into a time of worship. We're going to do it as a community. It's not individual worship. It's us doing it together as a church was always meant to do. We're going to enter worship together as a community. We should be praying during that time as the Spirit is speaking to us and moving amongst us. There'll be a prayer team up here. So if you need help, if you need prayer, you can come forward and have them pray for you. Do that. Come on. Do that. If you need help, come forward for prayer. And then there's opportunities to worship the Lord in different ways, man. You could come up here and get on your face. You can kneel before the Lord. If you want to go in the back corner and dance, do whatever you want to the Lord. Like, you can do that here. We create space now for the practices because it was while the community was practicing the things that Jesus taught them to do that they discovered who they truly were in him and what they ought to do. So we create real space. It's not like the sermon's over now. I could go home. Nah, dude. This is where the rubber meets the road now. The second set of worship is where we really press in to let the Spirit do the work in us. So Spirit, come and move in us. Maybe we have a, a, a glorious experience of your love for us and your healing power and you moving amongst us and your call on us. Thank you, Lord, that you love each one of us so much and you know the deep cries of our hearts today. Meet us each and every one and meet us together as this church is your people and move powerfully in us now for our good and for your glory. Please, Lord, move powerfully in our midst. Help us to be attentive and intentional now to seeking you.